Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Today, we are joined by Raj Dadada. Raj is the founder of Bloomreach, which powers a staggering 25% of all e-commerce experiences, and the author of the new best-selling book, The Digital Seeker, a guide for digital teams to build winning experiences. We discuss why e-commerce for 85% during the pandemic, dive into what it means to be and how to cater to a digital seeker, and why we may be entering a golden age of small business. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Well, Raj, great to see you. Great to have you on the podcast. Naveen, it's great to be here with you. And in full disclosure, we've known each other for quite a long time at this point. I was trying to think. I think it might be, I don't know, 1993. Well, it's been a privilege to follow your journey over the last couple of decades, Raj. It's been it's been quite a journey, but maybe we could start there before we get into your best-selling book and your success with Bloomreach and other startups. Tell us a little more about who is Raj. Where do you get all your curiosity from? Where do you get all your drive from? I had the good fortune of being, you know, mostly inspired by my parents. I grew up, uh, as you know, Naveen, in the Philippines. And so I was, you know, 60 kilometers outside of Manila in a small town. And my father is a pretty well-known agricultural scientist. He had a hand in creating the varieties of rice that are grown and eaten by billions of people around the world to like really go after the green revolution in those days. And my mother is a, is one of the most accomplished dancers and actresses from India. So the one thing I can say about them is whatever they did, they did extraordinarily well. And, and, you know, if there's one thing that, that my parents drilled into me, it was sort of do whatever you want to do, but whatever you do, be the best at it. And, you know, I think that stuck with me and maybe it's lack of choice. Maybe it's uh, osmosis, but somewhere along the way, people have, have certainly called me intense. Yes, I can probably agree with that adjective. Give us a sense of how you use that intensity to get from your education to Silicon Valley. You've had a lot of different experiences over the years. Perhaps you could hit some of the highlights and then end with how you founded Bloomreach. For sure. Yeah. A couple of highlights. You know, I, I got to the U.S. for the first time when I went to Princeton with you. And then when I graduated, you know, and, and spent two years on Wall Street, I was about to go to business school two years after my undergraduate. And I got in a summer project, I got involved with two entrepreneurs that were interested in starting a telecom business in Europe. And they were like, hey, we live in New York. Raj, you're single and 23 years old. Are you interested in moving to Europe and helping us get this started? And so I did, you know, turned down the admission, went to Europe for the first time ever. I had never been to Europe at that point, moved to Paris and said, let's give it a shot. And so, you know, I think that early entrepreneurial journey, which was a company called First Mark Communications, more than anything else, convinced me to be an entrepreneur for the rest of my life. I just loved it. And it kind of, regardless of outcome, because it had, it was a mixed bag in terms of its ultimate outcome, but it was such an exhilarating experience. And I got so much confidence out of that single kind of three-year journey that I came back to the US pretty clear that that's what I wanted to do. And, and after a stint at business school, moved out to Silicon Valley and you know, the entrepreneurial journey has continued ever since. 
So you're the founder and CEO of Bloomreach. Tell us a little bit about Bloomreach and how you got that business started, because that's been, I would say, a, about a 10-year journey at this point, right? It's been a 10 over 10-year journey, and it's been awesome. And I, you know, back in in those early days, 2009, 2010, the thesis really was, hey, there's this amazing AI and machine learning technology that's coming out of places like Google and Facebook or being used by places like that. And it's all being used for advertising. And honestly, who goes on the web because they're interested in being advertised to? It's like <laughs> exactly what people don't want from the web, right? So my thought was, let's harness this technology and let's create the kind of magical experience that touches what I thought would ultimately be 7 billion human beings whose entire lives were largely spent digitally. If we could harness that technology to create amazing experiences for each of them, then we'll have the dual effect of uplifting the quality of life of humanity on one side and on the other side, you know, we'll make a lot of money for the brands that power those experiences because they'll reach customers and consumers in these incredible ways. And that was the genesis of building Bloomreach. You know, I recruited five of the best engineers I knew out of places like Google and Facebook, convinced Bain Capital Ventures to give us $5 million, and, and we were off to the races and up and running. I think it's important for our audience to know that Bloomreach isn't just a run-of-the-mill startup. Give them a sense of the scope of your operations. I, I didn't realize this until recently that you guys power something like 25% of e-commerce experiences. What does that number actually mean? Does that really mean a quarter of the big brands that we all know? That's exactly what it means. It means that brands representing a quarter of e-commerce in some way use the Bloomerage platform. And you can think about, if you think about that, the scope is massive because Amazon is half of e-commerce. So that means, you know, almost a half of the rest in some way uses the platform. And what's incredible about the scale is we're talking about, you know, 800 plus of the world's best brands. And it's a very, it's some of the largest brands that you know. So you might be shopping for sneakers on Puma. You might be looking for outdoor apparel on REI. You might be buying cookware on Williams Sonoma. You might be working with emerging brands like an Olakai, you know, buying sandals. And somewhere along the way, you're going to touch an experience that in real time is powered by Bloomreach. And so we're talking about scale of billions of interactions happening every second, running through our infrastructure, serving those experiences in real time, creating what we hope are, are moments of magic for, for consumers worldwide. And so it's a company that today has about 800 of the largest brands on the planet that work with us. And it's very much the the largest ones, medium and large companies for the most part, across primarily the US and Europe. It's got about 700 odd people in the company, somewhere between six and 700. I've lost count with our rapid pace of, of hiring. And you know, let's just say the, the revenue scale of the company is at a stage where if it wanted to be a public company, it could. Did you say billions of interactions per second with your platform? Yeah, because if you think about it, every click, every browse, every interaction, every search, every query, at some point, you know, touches our infrastructure. And that's one of the things that makes Bloomreach amazing is the data makes the engine smarter. So what do, what do we actually do? We really, at, at the end of the day, power the shopping journey. And we use AI and machine learning technology to do it. We do that in really three different ways. The first is, you know, by powering the marketing that happens digitally. So we'll be the engine behind personalized email messaging, SMS messaging, you know, personalized advertising, all the communications that a brand has with you. So that you, imagine you're out buying a sofa, you'll get an email ping 
it, it will give you a personalized sofa knowing your, your price propensity and brand propensity. Then you'll click through and then we'll, we'll, we've got an offering to inspire you to buy that sofa. And that might mean placing it in your living room. That might mean an AR experience. That might mean a, a great imagery. And so we have a content experience that we will power on the e-commerce website to inspire you to buy the sofa. And then finally, we've got a discovery pillar, which is basically now decided to buy the sofa. We'll power the search box. When you type a query in, when you are navigating, the algorithms will figure out exactly how to guide you to the right sofa. And so through that whole shopping journey, engaging you first, inspiring you to buy and guiding you to the right product, we're able to drive a lot of top line revenue for the brands we work with and drive these incredible experiences. And all of it's powered by this data engine that deeply understands who you are as a consumer and deeply understands who the brand is and what products they offer. And then in real time is matching exactly the right product to you as a consumer. That's what Bloomreach does in a nutshell. Well, if anyone listening was wondering why we were so excited to have you on the podcast, I think that question has been answered. Yeah, when you when you think about the fact that you take Amazon out of the equation and half of every other e-commerce, I guess, interaction, or is it by interactions or is it by dollars that you measure that number? Yeah, so what we say is brands representing 25% of e-commerce because a lot of these brands are not using the full right. platform. Sure. Um, you that know, makes they, sense. they may be using a small part of it. They may be using it in one country. They may be using it for one product line. And, and the market itself, you know, is just massive. We're talking about a, yeah. about an $8 billion software addressable market. E-commerce itself is, is obviously massive and is, has been just like deeply transformed by the pandemic. And that's been a real accelerator for the business. Let's double click on that for a little bit. Tell us a little bit. You teed up the question perfectly. How has the pandemic impacted e-commerce companies, which I guess at this point is likely should be most companies on the planet? And then I also want to talk a little bit about what or where we found the winners and losers in the pandemic, both on online and offline commerce. I'll let you take that in any order you choose. Yeah, let's talk about the pandemic first. I, I think the pandemic has really... Been tra- and it's been transformative for the lives of people. It's been transformative, I think, for our economy as a whole. And we can talk more about those points. But if we zoom in on e-commerce, it's really accelerated e-commerce by about five years, we think. So we saw, on, in general, e-commerce was growing pretty steadily at 15% year over year globally for many years. And then last year, obviously, it grew about 85%, something like that. And then the question was, this year, in 2021... Would we see a slowdown or a return to normalcy or would we still see growth? And we're still seeing growth. So it just shows that basically what's happened is consumer shopping habits have totally changed structurally. There's a category of products that never were bought online in en masse, autos, grocery, areas like that, that now all of a sudden are very much part of the normal purchasing patterns of the everyday consumer. And then the second thing that's happened is certain demographics, particularly older demographics that were much less likely to shop online are now shopping online and love it. So with that, we've seen this dual catalyst of more wallet share going to e-commerce and more people doing e-commerce in the first place. And that has really been a step function change in the growth of of commerce. And and you said it well, what isn't e-commerce? You know, it, it wasn't long ago that we, we, we signed up a, a train service in Florida that decided that they wanted to sell tickets online. Now, that might not have been your classical retail sale, but 
you know, whether we're talking about transportation or online lending or whether we're talking about certain entertainment areas, we we serve an amusement park called Cedar Fair that that you can think of as powering great America. So this is not your grandfather's e-commerce in, in many ways. It's just taken over much of the economy in a really good way. And so the pandemic has made it possible, has really accentuated the winners from the losers. The losers are losing bigger than ever before, and the winners are winning bigger than ever before. And that's, that's very much what we've seen happen as a result of the pandemic. And one thing I've been very curious about is how does that impact small businesses in America? Because, you know, my knee-jerk reaction to those comments is that's all great, but doesn't that mean that more and more revenues are going disproportionately to companies like Amazon or other big companies that have online experiences and the, you know, the small businesses around the corner who obviously cannot afford to, don't know what Bloomreach is, can't afford to perhaps have the same technology infrastructure, the revenues are coming out of their pocket. Talk to me about um, where you see that trend going and how small businesses can fight back a bit or compete better. I think this is going to be a golden age for small businesses. It's just that they're going to look different than the small businesses of the past. The small businesses of the past were very local and very much a function of the distribution channel they had. So if I opened a mom and pop shop around the corner, my client base was my locality, you know, my neighborhood and the people that walked in the door. And if I wanted to go bigger than that, I had to go do deals with people like Walmart and other such people who uh, controlled the distribution channel. Well, the web has changed a lot of that and e-commerce has changed a lot of that. And you can see that with companies like Shopify. So Shopify, which is now worth $180 billion, has thousands tens of thousands of small businesses that are selling stuff online. And if I take, you know, some of these examples that, that Bloomreach works with, with, which are, I would call them emerging brands that sort of come out of nowhere to use the example of Olakai, which is, which makes sandals, you know, Hawaiian brand of sandals. What, how would they have reached an audience globally as a small business before? They would have had to go do deals with all kinds of people. Now they put up a storefront. They got an amazing product. They, they certainly market on Facebook and Google and elsewhere. They build a loyal customer base. There's word of mouth that spreads digitally. And for much less money than it takes to pay rent and distribution and everything else, they stand up a website and have people shop directly with them and stop cutting and cut out the middleman in that process. So that story is being replicated in the hundreds of thousands. And, and I think it's going to create a golden age of entrepreneurship, of small businesses excelling. You know, when my, when my cousin, you know, quits his banking job in Canada and says, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to create a new brand of fragrances, he can go do that in a way that he could never have thought about 15 years ago, you know, in a different time. Interesting. Well, I certainly hope you're correct about that. That's something that our audience in D.C. would would have a lot to say about in terms of the impact on those trends we're talking about on small businesses and by definition, jobs and voters. Jobs are an interesting one too. I mean, I'll tell you another interesting statistic. I'm, I'm on the board of a company called Zingtree, which is not, not Bloomreach, but sells software to the call center space. And for years, people have been saying, you know, automation is going to take over call centers, right? And there aren't, there aren't going to be jobs for call center employees. The reality is there are more jobs today in call centers than there were 10 years ago. And why is that the case? It's because, sure, there's automation. But on the other hand, people are buying so many products online and walking into stores so much less, they got to talk to somebody for all kinds of complex needs. So the demand shift, whatever automation hit is happening in the jobs, is overwrought by the, no, by the amount of demand that gets created when you democratize a wide range of services. 
So with all those interactions and transactions happening on your platform, you must have tremendous insight into a lot of these trends. Do you guys publish any Bloomreach trend reports or can you give us some insight on stuff that you know we're not seeing out there in the mainstream media or even from an expert eye? Yeah, you know, I mean, we publish a report called the Commerce Pulse Report, and it comes out fairly regularly and it tracks trends in North America and Europe. And I think the most interesting thing to have seen was during the pandemic, we could see what consumer, you know, we could see when the toilet paper was running out. We could see when people were ordering eggs. We could see when the haircut equipment, you know, was happening. And so the consumer habits were visualized through the data in many ways. We could see the regional disparities, the places where in certain metropolitan areas, in parts of America where people are mostly shopping online and where stores remained closed due to lockdowns and other parts of the South and the Southeast where everything was open and it felt like back to normal from an offline perspective. We could see a lot of those trends. Right now, what we see is a, you know, a reemergence of people buying the sets of things that they would buy because they go out. So for example, apparel sales are off the charts because there's a wide class of apparel that people just didn't buy when they were mostly at home. And now there's, you know, there's a different set of apparel that people are buying because they're out and about. You know, travel has been among the hottest areas in general, but we are seeing slowdowns. And, and you can see that from the recent announcements from people like Airbnb and the airlines where Delta is causing some pops as a whole. So yeah, it's a real-time pulse on what's happening, you know, kind of all around. I will say this, there are unintended consequences that nobody expects all around that are very non-linear in the economy. I mean, just to use an, an example, we work with a large jewelry retailer. And who buys jewelry if you're not going out, right, in, in general? But it turns out, and if there's, you know, there were no proms and there were no wedding anniversaries out and trips of that type. But it turns out that because people couldn't celebrate with each other in person and wear the jewelry for themselves, it was one of the most popular gift items to send to people because I couldn't be there for you, you know, to celebrate with you for your wedding anniversary, whatever it is, I'm going to send you jewelry. And, and, and so these, these are very hard to predict trends in terms of secular shifts in the economy. That's fascinating. The other thing I think would be interesting to understand is from a consumer's perspective, our audience's perspective, what do we need to know about, about how we're being marketed to? That's sort of a mouthful question, but I think I got that right. Yeah, there's, you know, I think it, it's a great question. And, and what we need to know is that if we want to be, we are in control of our lives. And if we don't pay attention, then we're not. And that's the critical thing we need to know. It's like anything else. You know, if you sort of don't pay attention, there's a decent chance your data, your clicks, your shopping, a lot of that is well understood by lots of companies and that you're being marketed to in unintended and unexpected ways. But if you should choose now with the regulatory environments that, that have come out with CCPA in California, with GDPR in Europe, with, with increasing privacy standards all around, we can be in control. We are headed for a consent-based world where ultimately you need my consent in order to use the data to serve and that's going to create profound shifts in business models, consumer habits, and, and the way businesses operate as a whole. I think it's all good, by the way. I think, I think for the most part, with the exception of the fact that at time regulation can be overbearing, the spirit of it is, is in the right place. Very interesting. So as long as we're willing to take control of our own experience online, we still will retain that control. But if we're just 
passive users of the experiences we sort of are, you know, letting the companies control our data. You know, it goes to the profound question of which, which is a topic that, of, a topic of discussion, right? Which is sort of platforms like Facebook and the like, you know, and their use of data. How do we feel about that as consumers? And to me, I have a very simple test, which is I'm not worried about what data you collect from me. I'm worried about what you do with that data. And that's a very important distinction. And we can see that through two pretty simple experiences. Lots of people are up in arms about Facebook and Facebook using the data on one side. But, but nobody complains all that much about Spotify and says, hey, how come you're using my data to personalize my music and recommend music? Or nobody's all that worried about Apple saying, here's the quickest route to work when clearly they're tracking exactly how you navigate to work in order to figure that out, right? So why is that? And the answer is because in Facebook's case, you're using my data not to my benefit. You're using my data to make money for yourself. And, but I got on the social network to share photos with my friends. I didn't get on the social network to give you data to enable you to advertise to me in random ways. On the other hand, if my listening experience is a little better, I'm cool with that. And that's the critical thing. They actually both use personal data. That makes a lot of sense. An interesting juxtaposition that you bring up, which is a, a good segue to, we, we've touched on a lot of things already, but I think you've memorialized a lot of your thoughts in your new best-selling book. Tell us about The Digital Seeker. And congratulations, by the way. It's pretty hard to write your first book as a successful CEO founder and have it be, what did it reach, like number three or four on the- That's right. It was number four on the, on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Yeah. So The Digital Seeker was published from Columbia University Press in June. I really wrote it because people would ask me, what makes the winners win and what makes the losers lose in digital? And the answer to that question through my research of you know, all of our customers and about 100 interviews or so is that the winners who win serve the seeker, not the customer. And what does that mean? Well, what that means is Amazon has trained us over 20 years that, that stuff should be easy and customer service. And it's just, let's, let's make everything easy. And easy is cool, but easy is not great. Easy is good. Great is when you offer me an experience that uniquely goes to not just what I say I'm interested in, but what my underlying motivation for that purchase is. And that's what I call the seeker. So let's use an example. I, I might be a customer of plywood. So I go online, I look for plywood. So I'm a potential customer of plywood. You can just sell me the plywood. But of course, I can go buy that plywood from another 25 online stores. So just because you made it easy for me to buy plywood doesn't give me a good reason to shop at your brand. On the other side, the seeker is why am I buying the plywood? Well, I might be buying the plywood because I'm building a deck and I want to entertain my friends and my family on my deck. So if you create the kind of digital experience that's all about how you build a deck and how you entertain your friends with, with that, and along the way, sell me some plywood, you're going to do a lot better than if you just try to sell the plywood. And that's the key difference between the digital experiences that serve the customer and the digital experiences that serve the seeker. And so in industry after industry, and there's example after example of everybody from soccer teams like Bayern Munich to healthcare organizations like NHS Digital to stitch fix in the fashion industry and on and on and on, the winners in industry after industry build and serve the seeker. And that's the core insight of the book. So it sounds like it's getting into the real why of why they're really doing it. Keep asking why, why are we getting plywood? Well, to get a deck. Why we need a deck to 
entertain our friends, why we want to, you know, and so on and so forth. The, the deeper you can get into the baseline or fundamental driver of why that consumer is out there and spending his or her time on the web trying to find that stuff, it sounds like that is, but that's hard to do, isn't it? Super hard to do. And really another great attribute of digital, because it used to be very hard to figure that out. You used to do focus groups and stuff like that. Now the data tells you why somebody is interested in that if you're curious. But it is, it's not good enough to just understand the why. You know, step one is to understand and identify your seeker. Step two is then to have the kind of technology that makes it possible to respond to that, to build the quality of experience. It's a lot different to build a digital experience to serve, you know, building a DAC than it is to sell plywood. Those are two completely different kinds of experiences. You need different classes of platforms to, to make that possible from a tech perspective. And then finally, you have to have a completely different operational model as a business and as an organization to be successful there. It changes business models. It changes organizational structure. It changes roles within a company. So when you go downstream from the seeker, it's not just, hey, this is a cool website. It actually turns out to pretty well transform soup to nuts your organization. And that's how you end up with Airbnb and Uber and Spotify and Netflix. And maybe my favorite part of this whole story is that it's not a Silicon Valley story. It's really a story in industry after industry of the US Tennis Association reinventing the way analytics is used to train players digitally. The story of Bayern Munich, a soccer team in, in Munich that goes out and says, we're gonna create the kind of fan and augmented reality experience where you feel like you're in the stadium, even if you're sitting in New York City. It's an industrial supplies company called MSC Direct that is rethinking the way that repair, repair technicians work off of factory floors you know, in a wide variety of areas. So it's, it's the story outside of Silicon Valley and the ability to understand the seekers often deeper if you are serving consumers rather than a tech company where you don't really know the industry. It makes it possible to win big in this way. Well, you gave some interesting examples, companies that we would have, wouldn't have normally thought of in terms of being digital experiences, especially in, in the sports world. But I can sort of imagine, I need to check it out, the uh, Bayern Munich website after this and see what they got. Yeah. But I think it might be interesting for our audience to talk a little more about steps one, two, and three, because I, I found those sort of in the maybe two-thirds or 75% in the back of your book. So I was able to get through most of it. And I thought I think you had 10 or 12 questions for each of step one and step two, step three, which we don't need to get through. Although I do sense there's going to be an inspirational you know, Tony Robbins style workshop coming with Raj Zadata at the helm one day, but let's leave that for another time to transform offline or not digital native businesses to digital businesses. But if we had to summarize steps one, two, and three in terms of what's the key question in step one, what's the key question in step two, and the key question in step three, I think that might be interesting. And clearly, you know, anyone who's running a business or has the aspiration to be a senior executive should probably get your book and understand it. I'm not getting commissioned folks for this, by the way, but tell us a little bit more about steps one, two, and three, Raj. I think that might be very insightful. So let's start with one, which is really about the seeker. So it starts with the mindset of, I really want to, I have the curiosity to understand the why. And really the takeaway question from step one is why is somebody interested in my product and keeping asking why. Now, of course, at the end of the number of why questions, you might end up with, you know, happiness. And you've probably gone too far if, if that's where you ended up. But there is a place, there, there's a meta problem that someone's trying to solve for 
that you really need to understand. And that is step one. Uh, it's all about that why question. Step two on, is really about the technology stack. And I think the critical question there is, are you building your digital experience or are you buying your digital experience? And that's a very important question. The reality is, if, you're, if you view your digital experience as core to your business, which you should if you're going to serve the seeker, then it isn't just, hey, I hired a, C a CTO or a CIO and they picked three pieces of tech and they went on their way. It's really the translation of the needs of the seeker into the platform that makes these experiences great. And that is that often means building these great experiences. And, and back to that example of the U.S. Tennis Association, they literally went out and worked with IBM and they worked with, with startups and they hired an analytics team because the problem they were trying to solve was, you know, how do, how do great tennis players train and what is the analytics that I need to offer in order to give you even a 1% advantage in a match? And that's not a question that you can answer as a human being without a lot of analytics. So the analytics were in service of the underlying motivation of the player, which was to win, not just to hit that shot a little better. And, and, how, and you, to fit, once you figure that out, then you can distill through technology how to build a kind of app or website or NLP experience to make that possible. The third, the third thing I think is in many ways the hardest. A lot of organizations will figure out the why and they'll figure out the tech. But they won't treat digital as a product. And to frame this, the old school way of doing it is I'm in the business of, of making air conditioners and I've got a tech team and they're responsible for the website. Well, wrong, because the digital experience is actually part of the product you're selling now. And if the digital experience is part of the product, it's the same as the air conditioner. It basically means your team has to be organized around that. You have to treat the digital experience with the same rigor of product as the air conditioner that you're making. And, and that means putting it at the center, not putting it off to the side. And so there's a whole set of rules that get built, including product manager and merchandiser and designer and more jobs, by the way, you know, a wide range of areas that you have to surround the digital experience with. And you got to treat it as a product that I'm shipping in the same way you treat the actual physical product that you're shipping. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, I tell entrepreneurs that I coach from time to time that customers don't buy products, they buy solutions to problems. And, and if obviously, if you're creating a digital solution and to have a digital team that is not interacting with the product team, that could be a real issue for the company. That's right. Yeah, it's it's a pretty profound transformation. It basically is means putting the building product-led teams and treating digital product the same way I would treat physical product in, in, in the same way. And, and you see that, I mean, let's take an example like Peloton, right? Peloton obviously makes the hardware, which is the actual machine, but then it's got the subscriptions and the classes. Now you tell me, what is the product of Peloton? Well, it's all of that. It's, it's the way it works together. It's the system as a whole. And seeker-centric businesses think about it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Can we circle back to something we talked about earlier, which we touched on, which was jobs. And one thing we ask a lot of guests on our podcast here is, what do you see as the future of jobs? And I'm not talking about 20 years in the future where we can all make up either a utopian or dystopian future. But, you know, in the next five years, if you were a mid-career professional, for example, what skills 
would you be looking to acquire right now to make sure that you're marketable in five years from now? Or what industries should you be shifting towards or away from, from a career management perspective? Any advice for folks like that is appreciated. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that I think is, is interesting about the dynamic we're in right now is there's obviously huge displacement happening in certain industries, right? And, and the one we've heard the most about is trucking as self-driving trucks. What's that going to do to the trucking industry, which is a huge source of employment in the U.S., for example? I would say a bigger displacement that's been less talked about has been the displacement of, and one I know a lot about, is the displacement of retail retail employees as malls shut down and stores shut down. What do you do? You know, if you're if you're in one of those jobs, and to me, it's not about changing industries. It's about going to the future of your industry. So if you're in retail and you have a lot of experience in figuring out what dress works best for a particular occasion, go find the digital merchandising job and train up for that. Because there's the same job. It's just an online job of figuring out exactly what dress to show to whom and in what situation and what style and what season. It may not be standing in a store and explaining that to an individual person or two or five or 15 but it will be translating that experience into a website that I can then, you know, go out and do. And really importantly, I don't have to be some kind of tech expert to make that happen. I just have to translate my knowledge in a way that is the way the future of my industry operates, which is e-commerce, not the way the past of the industry operated, which is, you know, kind of very one-to-one salesperson-led selling online. And that same story, I believe, replicates itself If you're an education professional, sure, you know, it's not like schools are going to go away, but it's pretty clear that online education is here to stay in a a fairly big way. And it's not like a group of tech folks from Silicon Valley can figure out online education. You need to understand education in order to do that. So you've got valuable skills likely. They're just being applied in old school ways. And I would encourage everybody to find a new school way of applying the current skill that you have. I think that's a very powerful answer, Raj, because we've asked that a few times and that makes a lot of sense. Essentially, train yourself for the future of your industry, translate your skills into a digital native way as opposed to an old school way. That's right. And actually, you know, I, as part of this effort, I started a program with Santa Clara University where Santa Clara University is now, has a retail leadership program, and they're now training undergraduates and, and, and students around the area of digital merchandising, which we think is a big job that's coming up in the retail industry in a time when retail is in many ways losing jobs in stores. And so there are these programs like that, that that exist in the world to train yourself up. And you know, really importantly, I think it's unrealistic when we tell mid-career professionals, let's go learn programming and JavaScript and this and that, you know, to go make that happen. I don't think that's the answer. There are many more jobs around the ecosystem than they are at the heart of. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't get into tech. That, that makes sense. Obviously, that's well understood. But there's lots of surrounding jobs that are in great demand. Let me switch gears for a second. Talk to us a little bit about your take on Congress's ongoing feud with big tech. It seems like every other month, you know, a bunch of tech CEOs are dragged in front of Congress on C-SPAN to talk about privacy or use or misuse of 
consumer data or some topic like that. So I'll, let me, I'll just leave it a little bit on the broad side. But what's your take on that? Is that something we're going to see more and more of? And what do you think the end game here is for Silicon Valley? It's a great question. And, and so first, I think there are two sides to this story, for sure. On the one side, Congress people have taken plenty of money from the same Silicon Valley politicians that they parade you know, over to Capitol Hill. So I think we got to know that, that there's a lot of political grandstanding and, and things of that type. But on the other side, for the most part, I think that Congress and Washington, D.C. has understood that that these technology giants do in many cases control our access to information, control much of the economy, certainly control much of the stock market, control much of the jobs of the future, control much of our data. And so they are the most powerful companies in the world by far and have lacked responsibility in many cases to ensure that given that increased power you know, comes increased responsibility and much of that hasn't been taken on because there's been this Silicon Valley mindset of I, I, I just get big forever and whatever it takes to go do so. And obviously that's capitalism and that makes sense. But on the other side, now we're starting to see those technologies be abused in ways that are very detrimental to people and, and rob people of rights and cause disinformation. And we can go on on all the ills that exist on those platforms. And the answer that Silicon Valley has had for a very long time, which is fundamentally, we are not responsible. We just build the tech. Just isn't good enough anymore. And given that tech companies haven't recognized that for themselves, I think it's mostly a welcome thing because it will create a sense of responsibility within these companies to ask those deeper questions that have never really been asked. Well, Raj, we've covered a wide range of topics and highly useful information on these trends because what you're talking about is applies to really every business on the planet. So hard to be more applicable than that line of thinking. What gives you hope for the future? I have a belief, and this might be the glass half full entrepreneurial perspective on the world, that out of this pandemic, we actually get two booms. The first is a productivity boom, which I think creates an economic boom. And we're seeing that. And we're seeing that in the form of recovery, but it's more than recovery. We know that economic growth comes from productivity improvements. And you know the productivity improvement that we're seeing as more and more goes digital, as more and more remote work happens, as people are commuting less in certain sectors of the economy, is going to create an economic boom and an innovation boom that I think itself will be substantial. And so that's one boom. But the other boom, you know, and I want to recognize that this doesn't apply to many large sectors of our economy where you've got, you know, first responders and when you've got teachers and when you've got nurses who have to be there. But there are large sections of the economy where I think we will see what I would call a happiness boom. And there's a large part of the workforce that was spending three hours in a car that was, you know, grinding it out, that was traveling across the country all the time, every week. And large parts of that work environment will change. And what I think that means is we might be in front of our computers doing Zoom sessions like we're doing right now during the day. But we'll be a little happier because we'll be able to work out. We'll spend more time with our kids, our family. We'll be able to not be quite as harried with the amount of business travel that we might have done. And in the evening, we'll, we'll be so tired of sitting in front of the computer that we might go hang out with a family member. We might go to the local bar. We might go to a local restaurant a little more than we might have otherwise. And so just from a mental health perspective, 
I think it creates a potential happiness boom. Well, I certainly hope you're right. How does our audience find you? Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Raj Dadada, or at Rdadada. Same on Twitter, at Rdadada. You can find me on bloomreach.com. Any of those are great ways to reach me. Perfect. And your book, The Digital Seeker, is out everywhere. You know, you can go to Amazon and search for The Digital Seeker. You can find it on Barnes & Noble. You can find it on a number of other bookstores, independent bookstores. Raj, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Naveen. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. Thank you.